Okay, so tonight, thanks Liz for, for doing that. Not yet, not yet. Uh, but my title is Daniel 5, A Living Faith in a Dying Culture. Guests have been coming to Labrie, I've noticed, exhausted. Just exhausted. Uh, not exhausted from social media, exhausted from phones, even though social media does play a part. But they're just exhausted from polarization. They're just exhausted with political anxiety. Uh, they, they feel this push and pull from the right and to the left. You know, and, and they just feel exhausted. And, and whenever we bring up something to talk about, they just almost don't want to talk about anything because it's just going to become political. <laughs> so I'm going to give you a political talk tonight. But I want to ask, how might we find a way forward as Christians um, to not become embroiled in the anxiety or in the polarization? I've been going through the book of Daniel. Oh, by the way, yeah, that was actually the first slide. So um, this guy has a sign up and says, my arms are tired. So, um, And there's some hilarious signs in there. But anyway, <clears throat> I've been going through the book of Daniel. Uh, and tonight I'm on Daniel 5, so there's four previous talks. Uh, my purpose has been to read the Bible through cultural issues. Uh, I don't know who said it, but someone said that they try to have their Bible in their left hand and their newspaper on the right. <laughs> and I'm not trying to have the newspaper dictate how I read the Bible. I'm trying to read the Bible and ask, how might this help us think culturally? And so I'm trying to allow the scriptures to dictate how I might reflect rather than trying to have an agenda. And, and, and sometimes it's good to approach scriptures with a topic. And you're like, okay, I want to research this, index this. But I'm, I'm just wanting to approach the scriptures and say, okay, how might this help me read my newspaper better? How might it help me read my newspaper at all? Um, interestingly, this is a story about someone reading writing on the wall. So uh, we might think about that. <clears throat> and so... Uh, <clears throat> As I, I'm going to look at Daniel 5, uh, we can go to the next slide, but I'm going to read it, and I'm going to give some passing comments, but I'm not going to give as many passing comments as I usually do, uh, and then I'm going to interpret it, uh, give some kind of possible interpretations, interpretation I like, and then uh, some applications of those interpretations as a way forward in thinking through these political issues or how we might think of a way forward as Christians in the midst of polarization. Uh, I think that it's going to be very interesting, the discussion. The lecture should be as less interesting as the discussion, so I need you to help me during the discussion on that, okay? Um, <clears throat> but how might we navigate between polarizations? I, I even think about that command to ancient Israel, turn neither, neither to your left nor to your right. Just follow the pillar of fire, you know, just go all this narrow way. And I think that almost speaks to our times, our polarization. Don't go to your left or to your right. Just try to follow the narrow way of where God leads. And so, uh, so how might we proclaim, uh, proclaim God's rule on earth and what we say and how we act? That's my point. Okay, so let me read Daniel 5. <clears throat> this is from the New Living Translation because it's a little bit easier to hear. Many years later, King Belshazzar gave a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he drank wine with them. 
While Belshazzar was drinking the wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver cups that his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. He wanted to drink from them with his nobles, his wives, and his concubines. So they brought these gold cups taken from the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. While they drank from them, they praised their idols made of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Suddenly, they saw the fingers of a human hand writing on the plaster wall of the king's palace near the lampstand. The king himself saw the hand as it wrote, and his face turned pale with fright. His knees knocked together in fear, and his legs gave way beneath him. The king shouted for the enchanters, astrologers, and fortune tellers to be brought before him. He said to these wise men of Babylon, Whoever can read this writing and tell me what it means will be dressed in purple robes of royal honor and will have a gold chain placed around his neck. He will become the third highest ruler in the kingdom. But when all the king's wise men had come in, none of them could read the writing or tell him what it meant. So the king grew even more alarmed and his face turned pale. His nobles too were shaken. But when the queen mother heard what was happening, she hurried to the banquet hall. She said to Belshazzar, Long live the king. Don't be so pale and frightened. There is a man in your kingdom who has within him the spirit of the holy gods. During Nebuchadnezzar's reign, this man was found to have insight, understanding, and wisdom like that of the gods. Your predecessor, the king, your predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar, made him chief over all the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and fortune-tellers of Babylon. This man, Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar, has exceptional ability and is filled with divine knowledge and understanding. He can interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought in before the king. The king asked him, Are you, Daniel, one of the exiles brought from Judah by my predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar? I have heard that you have have the spirit of the gods within you, and that you are filled with insight, understanding, and wisdom. My wise men and enchanters have tried to read the words on the wall and tell me their meaning, but they cannot do it. I am told that you can give the interpretations and solve difficult problems. If you can read these words and tell me their meaning, You will be clothed in purple robes of royal honor, and you will have a gold chain placed around your neck. You will become the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Daniel answered the king, Keep your gifts or give them to someone else, but I will tell you what the writing means. Your majesty, the most high God, gave sovereignty, majesty, glory, and honor to your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. He made him so great that people of all races and nations and languages trembled before him in fear. He killed those he wanted to kill and spared those he wanted to spare. He honored those he wanted to honor and disgraced those he wanted to disgrace. But when his heart and mind were puffed up with arrogance, he was brought down from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven from human society. He was given the mind of a wild animal, and he lived among the wild donkeys. He ate grass like a cow, and he was drenched with the dew of heaven until he learned that the Most High God rules over the kingdoms of the earth and appoints anyone he desires to rule over them. You are his successor, O Belshazzar, 
And you knew all this, yet you have not humbled yourself. For you have proudly defied the Lord of heaven and have had these cups from his temple brought before you. You and your nobles and your wives and concubines have been drinking wine from them while praising gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Gods that neither see nor hear nor know anything at all. But you have not honored the God who gives you the breath of life and controls your destiny. So God has sent this hand to write this message. This is the message that was written. Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is what these words mean. Mene means numbered. God has numbered the days of your reign and has brought it to an end. Tekel means weighed. You have been weighed on the balances and have not measured up. Parson means divided. Your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then, at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was dressed in purple robes. A gold chain was hung around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Babylonian king, was killed, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. So let's go to the next slide. So how are we to think of this story? This seemingly simple story. In order to help me understand a story, I often like to ask one question. Who's the hero? Who's the hero? What's the obstacle? How's it overcome? Mm -hmm. Who would you say is the hero? Okay, so um, Liz, I asked Samuel the same question, and he and he said, "Daniel, wait." That was the, probably the right answer. Now it seems that Daniel is the hero. Uh, we've read other stories in the book of Daniel that speak of him, an exile being called to the king to help solve this inscrutable dream. Nebuchadnezzar loved having dreams of of this of Daniel coming to solve a riddle. And as a result of him being honored by the king. So the same is happening here. It's a classic hero story. But somehow it doesn't quite fit. The hero stands before us, dressed in purple robes and a gold chain, declared the third highest ruler in the Babylonian kingdom, with the backdrop of destruction. It's odd. He's on a platform and all behind him is the, the palace is falling. As he's honored. That very night, Babylon fell. It's right that Daniel's robed in purple and he's honored, but it's deeply ironic. It's, it's tragic. He's honored by a king of a nation that will fall that very night. He, Daniel, uh, oh yeah, so perhaps I think this is why Daniel didn't want to take the money. Some people thought he didn't want to be bribed for a good prophecy or he was going to get bad news and he doesn't want to be paid for that, I think that he thought, this is all a farce. Keep your money, because I'm not going to be able to keep it anyway. That's my thought. Um, So he saw it coming. He understood the consequences. He understood the fulfillment of the prophetic riddle, and yet he's robed. And I, I almost imagine just Daniel standing there just feeling almost like a mockery. I'm being robed. And you're, I just gave you a riddle of damnation, of condemnation, and you're robing me when it's going to fall tonight? 
Um, nevertheless, he's robed as a hero in a kingdom that is judged in collapsing. So is Blind Fate then the anti-hero of the story? It's a nice postmodern ending, I find. Revealing that reality is but ironic in the end. Uh, it makes me think, uh, Liz, next slide. It makes me think of the musicians on the Titanic. Okay. Um, <clears throat> now, the, the Titanic, as you might know, was this majestic feat. And it was going to be uh, for all the wealthiest to be able to uh, take this cruise, like the first kind of cruise ship, but of epic proportions. But it's reported that the musicians, even as it was sinking, the musicians were playing music. People jumping off. <clears throat> Is this human ingenuity snuffed out in a moment? They could have been playing their best piece and then they're gone. Is it dignity before death raging, raging against the dying of the light? So it seems like death, collapse, obliterates any heroism. Now, Daniel doesn't die. He's in exile. He interprets his oppressor's doom, and his oppressor falls that very night. So this seems almost something heroic, great, but it's only for this exiled man to be taken under a new oppressor. Where's the victory in that? <clears throat> the justice, the truth. But somehow the biblical story, just leave it there, thanks. The biblical story does not have a tone of despair. Okay, I brought us to the heights of Daniel, to the despair of the Titanic. But somehow the biblical story never has this tone of despair like postmodern fiction. Why is that? The resolution is not that Daniel is the hero, nor is it that blind fate has the final word. The hero in this story, as it has been throughout the book of Daniel and throughout the whole Bible, is God. God is the hero of this story. Yet, his, his victory comes about in a more deeply ironic way. There's even deeper magic at work. God's supreme rule is demonstrated. I want you to hear this. God's rule is demonstrated and proclaimed through objects of captivity. Temple vessels and exiled people. So I want us to look at two aspects um, in reflecting on how God's rule is exemplified through these objects of captivity. This counterintuitive move of God. And I believe it will lead us to reflect on how we might think of this political and cultural moment. I want us to see how God's rule is demonstrated in two different aspects. God's purpose or purposes and God's power. God's purposes in history and God's power through weakness. And I want to look at these in turn. Let's see, what did I do? What's the next one? Okay, go backwards, please. Actually, you can go back to that. It's nice to look at a picture, isn't it? <laughs> <clears throat> we live in an image society. So these gold and silver cups from the temple have shown up in the book of Daniel before. We've heard about them before. In fact, they're in the very first two verses of the book. Daniel 1, chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, 
Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So that's the first verse. Nebuchadnezzar came and besieged Jerusalem, conquered Jehoiakim. But now listen to this, verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some vessels of the house of God. And Nebuchadnezzar brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So God is the one who has handed over the king of Judah. God is the one who has handed over these temple vessels. Nebuchadnezzar did not capture these things. You remember Belshazzar said, Oh, aren't you a Jude, an exile that my, my predecessor or my father Nebuchadnezzar captured, conquered? Uh, and it seems almost a, a time where Belshazzar is trying to exert his power to show I'm still king here. I'm letting you come in and interpret this thing for me. Thank you very much. Uh, and so, <clears throat> so Nebuchadnezzar did not capture these things. It was given to him. The king of Judah and the vessels were given to Nebuchadnezzar by God. And for a long time, through God's prophets, God told them that if they did not turn from their pride or from their false gods and turn back to him, he would hand them over to his enemies. Jeremy, Jeremiah spoke about how God is going to hand them over to Babylon. So, and this is in fact what happened. And so Daniel starts the whole narrative by saying, he gave you over. He gave the vessels over and he gave the exiles or he gave his people over. And so it, from the very beginning of Daniel, you don't see the name God of Israel or Yahweh. You only see most high God or God or the God of heaven, the Lord of heaven, something like that. You never hear Yahweh or God of Israel. <laughs> Yet you see that throughout it, God's hand is directing history in spite of their exile. And so these vessels in Babylon, particularly in the narrative of Daniel, serves as a reminder of God's, um, to God's people that they, have not, that they have been given over and that God is still in control of their fate. Um, so it's not surprising when Belshazzar profanes these cups, he finds himself numbered, judged, and weighed. So now these words, mene, mene, tekel, parson, it's really fun to say if you say it enough times. <laughs> mene, mene, tekel, parson, to say that, um, you'll perk you right up. Um, it must have been an encouragement to Daniel. I think that when he was interpreting it, it was an encouragement to see these words, mene, mene, tekel, parson. I just had to get it one more time. Um, it was a, when he sees these words, it's a prophetic word of God's hand at work. Okay, so I'm going to lead you down a little scholarly lane. A lot for my benefit, but it's going to be fruitful, okay? The story says that Daniel had to be... We're looking at Rembrandt's painting, by the way, and just actually just a section of Rembrandt's painting called Belshazzar's Feast. And you see Belshazzar looking at uh, the Hebrew letters. So the story um, in Daniel 5 says that Daniel had to be able first to read the words and then interpret them. It's odd that everyone can see them, but no one can read them. Mm -hmm. What's happening there? Now, one can only guess exactly how these words could appear to everyone with no one able to read them. Um, but it seems most likely that they were unpointed Hebrew consonants. Okay? We can imagine un unpointed Hebrew letters as the Hebrew often was before the Masoretics came in. 
the Masoretics basically preserved an oral tradition because the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures would have been read aloud, but the Masoretes, the Masoretes uh, basically pointed it, and so they put the vowels in all the letters. And so perhaps what's happening on the writing on the wall is that Belshazzar is just looking at consonants, Hebrew consonants. Uh, to help you understand what I mean, I have a modern example up there, over here, WGHD, BT, FND, WNTG. Now, if you were in your room and letters started appearing on your wall and they were just consonants, that would probably freak you out. Okay? And so you'd want to know what does it mean. Well, do you have a guess on what that might mean? They're not in order. That's why it's a, it's a game. Yeah. Oh, it's a game. You, you play too much Sudoku. <laughs> <laughs> Wade but found wanting. Wade but found wanting. You have the spirit of the holy gods in you. Well, that's good news. <laughs> <laughs> Only for the exercise. Kidding. <laughs> so Daniel would come to these uh, consonants and see that this is God's judgment. So he's called in and sees Hebrew consonants, most likely, and says, oh, I know how to read that. Okay. And what he sees is that these consonants actually seem to be weights, weights of monetary value. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. Okay. Uh, and so some people think it's this poetic saying because it's almost like what a merchant might say. Because when Daniel interprets, it's just mene means this. Tekel means this. Uh, parson means this numbered weighed divided but a lot of people think that it's probably a value of weight of shekels 60 and one and two halves okay. if you add that up it comes to 62 which is interestingly the same age as Darius the Mede just pointing that out but you see that when when Daniel's talking <clears throat> well that he's encouraged, and why would he be encouraged when he's interpreting this? Because it seems the same way that God revealed his judgment against Israel is now being born against Babylon. That Babylon is given a prophetic word, and the judgment says that God has weighed them in his scales of justice and has found them wanting. And now in his timing, he will bring them to judgment. So these vessels and ex exiles, these objects of captivity, seemingly captured by Babylon, in fact, has revealed, in spite of appearance, God's guiding hand, God's purposes in history. So we see that God's purposes stand firm throughout history, that kingdoms may rise, kingdoms may fall. It may be Nebuchadnezzar, it may be Belshazzar, it may be Darius, it may be Alexander the Great, it may be Julius Caesar. But God's word stands forever. This is what Daniel is encouraged by. So the second, so first was God's purpose in history. The second is God's power through weakness. Again, this witness comes from the objects of captivity. That's what makes it so ironic. Notice that when the vessels are misused, condemnation comes. They don't just symbolize that God has has some kind of remembrance, but actually they have power. As soon as they profane the sacred objects, they, um, the, the, the writing, the prophetic word comes on the wall. 
and you notice that when they were drinking, they were actually praising their idols, idols. praising their false gods. And so this is appropriate that the judgment call comes against them. But it requires another object of captivity to interpret it. So it requires a Judean exile to come to explain what they did with the vessels. And so it seems that Daniel, it seems that he was seemingly dismissed. I think that because in the other ones, it's like Nebuchadnezzar says, I'll give you the second, second highest ruler. And now Belshazzar is just saying, I'll give you the third highest because I have my best buddy here and he's got second place. Uh, but, you know, he's, he probably has gotten rid of Daniel. He's forgotten because I think that new administration always doesn't like the old administration. You know, you want to get out the old yeast, you know. Uh, Trump doesn't want anyone left from the Obama administration. And whoever's next probably won't want the previous administration. On and on, as you can see. Right? Uh, yet, those who, whom he considers captured, conquered, exiled, actually witness against the king. But this prophetic word against Babylon did not end the exile for the Jews. God's people would be exiled from, um, from Babylon to Persia to Greece and then on to Rome. Continually they were exiled and oppressed even when they were able um, to be in their own land. Jerusalem was conquered by Rome. But then comes a crucial moment which deepens this truth as we find in Daniel... Uh, uh, as well as in Daniel, that God's rule is sure even though it appears weak and foolish. That God's power is demonstrated and proclaimed through weakness. God demonstrates his rule not just that, that he rules, but how he rules. The crucial moment is when Jesus stands before Pontius Pilate because he has been handed over by his own people to be crucified. Pilate wants to know if Jesus is the king of the Jews. And this is how Jesus answers. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? Now there's a lot of gems in this one, but I have to give a whole lecture just for this passage. Okay. Uh, so I'm not going to go into it. I just want us to notice that Jesus is completely holding his composure as someone who is bound, subject to an exiled people, standing before the one who has holds life or death over him and Jesus is composed okay. he still trusts in God's purposes and in God's power and soon next slide please we see Jesus is soon robed then crowned with thorns and then crucified as the king of the Jews like Daniel he's rightly but ironically robed as king or as someone in honor. And it feels like a mockery. 
even though it's true. And it's here that God reveals his rule or how he rules. He is demonstrating his purpose in history by showing his power through weakness or what seems to be like weakness. And it's vindicated when Jesus rises again from the dead. So how might we, oh, and so, yeah, great. That's perfect. Thank you. So how might we understand these two aspects of God's rule in light of Daniel, in light of Jesus, the crucified king, for us today, for our political anxious times? Now, issues abound in society, and they're very, very complex. We won't kid ourselves. They're very complex. The problem is, is that they're being shoved into a politically reductionistic system as one that must be left or right. And this politically reductionistic system denigrates the needed reflection, nuance, and response to such issues. A fire alarm is set off anytime anything comes up. As soon as someone tweets, posts it on Facebook or whatever, people lose their mind. Okay. Everything is interpreted as apocalyptic. Uh, Obama is the Antichrist, Trump Hitler. In Canada, there's vitriol, but in a more reserved, simmering kind of way. Uh, there was deep hatred towards Stephen Harper and now hatred of Justin Trudeau. And I think that we can see the similarities that, uh, that liberals are attractive and conservatives are not. That was just a joke. That was good. Okay. So, let's keep going. <laughs> How might these two aspects... That is, God's purposes in history and God's power through weakness help us in some way forward. I want to suggest for the Christian, that is trust. To trust in the two aspects. To trust in God's power in history. To trust in God's power through weakness or purposes in history. So uh, the first one is trust in God's purposes in history. So the first... Uh, um, I often see many Christians very, very anxious about our cultural moment. Very anxious. Alarmist. But notice that Jesus was composed before Pilate. Completely at rest. That doesn't mean he didn't suffer, but he did trust in God pur God's purposes even over Pilate. I think I might have the words there. Yeah. He said that if his kingdom was from this world, his men would be fighting. So it's no surprise that earthly kingdoms fight. But my kingdom is not from this world. The kingdom of heaven. The kingdom may not be from this world, but it stands over all kingdoms and all times. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world. That's what Jesus says, to bear witness to the truth. So this is why Peter can say, fear God and respect the king. This is why Paul in Romans 13 can say that all authority comes from God and therefore we need to be subject to it. Now consider what Peter says in his first letter to the Christian communities, um, these Christians who are finding it very hard in public life. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, 
having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Now, Peter is speaking to Christians who are experiencing deep troubles in public life because of their faith. Peter is calling them to demonstrate a life that is tender-hearted, humble, and non-retaliatory. By doing so, they will witness to the hope that goes beyond the emergency, beyond the hope of the urgent or the immediate. Jesus has overcome sin and death to which history has been subjected and now reigns from his heavenly throne. So Peter is a person who can endure hardship because he has hope. Therefore, by trusting in God's purposes, the Christian may take the long view in history, not to be swept up too quickly in the newest emergency. So I have here, keep calm and carry on. But I want to redeem this one, keep calm and carry the cross on. Okay. Now, quick caveat to the savvy thinker here. This is not to suggest, or the skeptic, uh, this is not to suggest that a Christian should not protest. Sometimes Christians are guilty of being too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. It's argued that Christians are conservative simply because they want to maintain the status quo. Now, this is too complex of an issue to get into right now, but I want to say I'm not saying that one should not protest as a Christian. That's not what I'm saying. How might the Christian engage culture even in protest as a person of hope? As a person who sees Jesus as over history? By taking a longer view of history, by, God's, by seeing God's hands stand over nations and guiding history, that we, like Daniel, can be ready to speak truth and do it hopefully. The next application is trusting in God's power through weakness. This turns us to the application. So in the midst of turmoil and polarization, we've seen that it's so easy, in fact, it's tempting to turn to a strong man. This is true whether one is on the right or the left. I had quotes, I had pictures, and then I thought, well, that's too contentious. <laughs> Let's just say we're lots of people, even Christians in politics, are looking for a strong man mm -hmm. to still the storm. Um, <clears throat> you find that people shouting down and throwing out a speaker comes from the right or the left. It happens on both sides. And now that may be the predominant way of how we seek political change today. But how does the political change of the kingdom of God come about through his people? How is political change through the kingdom of God supposed to come about through his people? Jesus the king was lifted up in glory onto the cross. So Paul also made it a point to preach a crucified Christ. And it wasn't just what he preached, it's how he preached. It's how he lived it out. As he went about preaching about the kingdom of God, he would endure hardships, insults, and persecutions. He would respond not with retaliation, but with humility, courage, and long-suffering. Paul saw that God was announcing God's power in his rule through Paul's weakness. So you have this line in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. God said to me, this is Paul speaking, my grace is sufficient for you, 
for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. It's a really odd statement. It's a counterintuitive move. Now these hardships, insults, and persecutions are not just a byproduct of being a good person. It's not like the person who is suffering being moralistic at the party. These insults and persecutions come as a direct result of the political change that is happening through Paul's preaching and the apostles' preaching. Evangelism is inherently political. It's announcing Jesus is king, not Caesar, not anyone else. And when we shape our lives to the rule of God in Christ, it will have social, economic, and political implications. So the early church caused social unrest because it welcomed the poor, the widow, the orphan, the Greek alongside the Jew, the slave alongside the master, men, women, and children. All were considered equal citizens of the kingdom of God. And so these small communities were creating a disturbance in the force. <laughs> and the Roman Empire responded by persecuting these new upstarts. People would riot against Christians, as they did in Ephesus against Paul. This isn't because these early Christians were attempting a coup, a major overthrow of the political powers. They were simply adhering as small communities to the rule of God in Christ and proclaiming that. Uh, but they were seen as treasonous because they stood against the gods of the day. And therefore they stood against the progress of the empire. The empire wanted to dictate how political change was to come about. Not just what could come about, but how it should come about. So the early church actually affected political change, not just by what they said, but how they did it. So in conclusion, I want to just say that, you know, we've seen small acts of Daniel uh, and his friends through the book of Daniel. We've seen, uh, we've seen this disposition in the early church in Rome of just these small acts of faithfulness looking for God's purposes in history, God's power through weakness. And we see acts of faithfulness even in our own day and age. And each time they have political implications. I have lots of stories, but I just want to end with one modern example of a contemporary protest that was deeply rooted in a social crisis and a Christian worldview, and that one that suffered blowback from the powers that be, and as a result suffered fragmentation and disagreement in the protesters themselves. The one man who led the civil protest continually called forth a vision of the ethics of the kingdom of God while also directing the protesters to maintain a godly character. I believe what he had to say in this regard is exemplary and instructive to how we might call for political change in our own, light, um, own days, and to do so in the light of God's purposes in history and in light of God's power through weakness. So you see this picture of Martin Luther King. Uh, this is actually a picture in 1968. Uh, he will die the next day, assassinated. Mm -hmm. So it's in Memphis, Tennessee, which is where I'm from. Mm. Uh, but in 1963, Martin Luther King was le uh, the leading role in the March on Washington. And he has a very famous speech at that time called, I Have a Dream. Um, 
And so I want to read, I want us just to, to hear some of these things that he had to say and see how appropriate they are to, uh, to the topic tonight. So this is quite a while into his talk, but it gets to the point. There will be neither rest nor tranquility in America until the Negro is granted his citizenship rights. The whirlwinds of revolt will continue to shake the foundations of our nation until the bright days of justice emerge. And that is something I must say to my people who stand on the worn threshold which leads into the palace of justice. In the process of gaining our rightful place, we must not be guilty of wrongful deeds. Let us not seek to satisfy our thirst for freedom by drinking from the cup of bitterness and hatred. We must forever conduct our struggle on the high plane of dignity and discipline. We must not allow our creative protest to denigrate into physical violence. Again and again we must rise to the majestic heights of meeting physical force with soul force. The marvelous new militancy which has engulfed the Negro community must not lead us to distrust all white people. For many of our white brothers, as evidenced by their presence here today, have come to realize that their destiny is tied up with our destiny. They have come to realize that their freedom is inextricably bound to our freedom. I am not unmindful that some of you have come here out of great trials and tribulation. Some of you have come fresh from narrow jail cells. Some of you have come from areas where your quest for freedom left you battered by the storms of persecution and staggered by the winds of police brutality. You have been the veterans of creative suffering. Continue to work with the faith that unearned suffering is redemptive. I say to you today, my friends, though even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted, every hill and mountain shall be made low, the rough, rough places will be made plain, and the crooked places will be made straight. He should have lectured tonight. <laughs> Martin Luther King, in his pursuit of seeing civil rights fully extended to African Americans, desired to see such justice not just because it was written in the American Constitution, but because it was true to how God calls us to live before him. He pursued protest because of his convictions for a more just society as God called forth. Yet even with a majestic vision for society, he never succumbed to trying to create a human utopia, one accomplished by human coercion. He saw that it had to be done through God's power. So he trusted in God's purposes in history and in God's power through weakness. It was not to come about through human violence or retaliation, but through the high plane of dignity and discipline. The Bible shows that the Christian may pursue social and political change even through protest, but how might it look like if we are to be rooted in the cross of Christ? How might this look if we are to trust in God's purposes in history and trust in God's power and weakness as we seek the political change that the kingdom of God calls forth? It calls us from reducing reality to a series of power plays and political propaganda toward a trust in God, toward a trust in God whose truth endures and whose hope never ends. So now let's have time for discussion. <clears throat> You guys want to watch the movie Green Books?
<laughs> we'll watch it later, okay? We shouldn't, we've talked about this. Yeah, so this is a time where we have some discussion. Uh, you can ask me questions, but also feel free to respond to one another. Okay. Any reflections or thoughts? This isn't a silver bullet. This is just to lay out some ways forward. Okay. I just feel that there was so much information. My brain is just trying to put everything in their place. So. Mm -hmm. Okay. You know, even for someone intelligent like me, it's hard not just. Say something. Say. Me. <laughs> what do I'm trying to figure out? Like, as Christians in society, like, what do we do when? There, there no longer is a place for our voice. Um, like I'm, I'm reading a biography on Chesterton, and like he's, he said it was difficult to speak truth. The most difficult thing, I mentioned to some people, is to speak truth into your own culture. But he was at a time when, like, he had a popular voice, even though he was saying really radical things and calling people the truth but I, I feel yeah it's we're in a different situation now in, in Daniel's case he uh, found himself speaking to Nebuchadnezzar um, God's words and then he disappears off out of the limelight even though he'd been elevated to an astoundingly high position Nebuchadnezzar's successor comes along and I don't know how long he reigned before this instance on the last day of his reign occurred but then suddenly Daniel is called up again to uh, speak God's word but it's that gap in the middle of nothing that I find rather intriguing mm -hmm. uh, according to what I remember from the book of Daniel uh, and, and God was there, almost biding his time. Yeah, it's it. Yeah, you know, Daniel. You know, he he is brought to prominence. It almost seems like all these stories don't seem to match because it's almost a hero story over and over and over again. You're like, how could you forget Daniel? He's the second highest. Oh, he's second highest again. Oh, he's second highest again. And even when he's second highest, he, he's not even called in Daniel 4 until everyone else gets to say. And so it almost seems like a culture is constantly looking for everyone else to have a say. Uh, I think that God's word can continually be marginalized in those who carry it. There are moments in history, uh, but I don't think that we are, we may be in a different time than the 20s or 1890s. Um, but... Uh, throughout history and throughout the world, there's many times when the Christian voice or God's truth has been marginalized. God's word or prophetic word has been marginalized, sometimes unheard by God's people. But yet, God's word continues to emerge, continues to emerge. So, so I'm trying to say that let's, let's just not try to have, instead of trying to conquer Parliament or trying to conquer the hill mm -hmm. in the US not that that's not it's not it is a worthy pursuit 
to pursue politics mm -hmm. and to want to be prime minister president as a Christian. I don't have a problem with that, and that's not what I'm saying. But I'm just saying that in the moments when Christians are not being heard, let's not just make that our only aim. Let's try to, to speak God's truth and to act out God's truth wherever we are in a simple house like this, um, in our jobs, wherever that is, and allow that word just to be sustained by God. Allow Him to allow it to stand forever rather than, than us feeling that we need to pull it up and make him relevant again. That's how I'm thinking about it, but did you have something else that you wanted to say? No, I mean, it just seems like there will be just a greater persecution than just doing that in, in, this, <coughs> in this time period. That seems what about, inevitable. What about, the, again, Daniel, the prelude to him being thrown into the lion's den, where it was his practice to pray with an open window facing Jerusalem where anybody including his enemies could see him um, and he was worshipping God being consistent um, holding to what he believed to be right throughout um, and it's only at certain junctures in the story where this kind of suddenly jumps out but you I told that this was his daily practice. He was being, if you like, a Christian in his daily living, um, and just letting God, God, be God, be sovereign. <coughs> I think the word hope you mentioned, and I think the, that we as Christians have hope in spite of whatever's going on. And I think that's a message that we have to the world today. You talked about people being uh, frantic <coughs> and, and worried and all of that, because I think they've lost the hope, because the hope comes from those two points that you're making. Mm -hmm. That even in the, the least of us, there, there is, we are God's instruments. Right, I mean, because Jesus himself says, if my kingdom were from this world, my men would be fighting. fighting yeah. And I wouldn't be up here. Yeah. I would be, you know, creating a different uprising. Yeah. That doesn't mean that we become complacent. No. But we do have hope. No. It doesn't mean the kingdom is not in this world. You know, it's not from this world, but it's up. In one sense, it's, it's part of our world. Mm. But I do have a couple thoughts on it too. Is one you know talk about you know what can we do? Well, it seems throughout the whole Christian history that God worked primarily through you know people that appeared powerless. You know, you know from pick the Israelites, this uh, this little tribe of people that were used subjected to slavery, always being occupied, totally powerless, and that's. You know, and then we see Jesus, an illegitimate child, and basically the peasant class. Right. You know, people, and you can go right through right to Martin Luther King. Right. Really. And the other thing that occurs to me was I just finished a book called The Patient Ferment. Hmm. I forget the guy's name, but it was like it was the first 300 years of Christianity. Hmm. And his, his, uh, one of the main points with, with, was patience is that they didn't ex anticipate, you know, results like right now, like in one prime minister or president's term of office, 
you know. You got four it, years. It, it, was, <laughs> it was a you know, multi-generational solutions. And you can see that, like, you know, with, with um, Martin Luther King. Yeah. You know, things are a lot better now than they were, but they're still not great. Right. But but it but it's you know God's God's way slowly you know works this thing but ultimately we can trust that the, the ship will get you know will be righted you know if you like but it does it does require patience and we and we just do our little bit in our life that hopefully moves moves things forward you know as best we can and it's it's not going to be done in a straight line yeah I think that's so true and I think it's very difficult for us. I, I would say any of us to to have the long view that even the early Christians had mm-hmm. that they were not thinking oh we need to have things change in the next five years uh, I mean it was as bad as it gets um, and it took hundreds of years for changes to come and people are scholars are always trying to figure out okay how did they get the political intrigue and who talked to who to make this thing a world dominating force but it was it was God tending to this thing, and it, it emerging through acts of faithfulness and charity uh, through the weak and through the poor, and, and so it is almost like a riddle. Uh, the early church is almost a riddle itself um, in world history. Well, the other thing about, you know about this book too was that they weren't the church wasn't growing because they were going around saying you better believe this, you know, the, you know, and this sort of thing. But they, people were being attracted to the church by the love that they showed to each other and to to the others and to their enemies. You know, they were attracted by the love, not by, you know, the example that these people were setting, other than not just the message, because they didn't hear the message until they actually came and wanted to hear the message. Yeah, that is, is yeah. I when I was thinking about this, is that what the apologetic for power through weakness. You know, how might the Christian say this is persuasive to someone who wants to see change? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, the change is not going to come immediately, but I, I do believe that there's something very persuasive about saying, oh, you know, power is displaced. It's not just another cash grab. It's not just another power grab. It's just, no, actually we're, we're relinquishing that mm-hmm. because we are in trust. We are in hope. We are uh in love uh, as slaves of love to one another and that I believe that is persuasive to people when they start getting a taste of and a taste and seeing that the Lord is good in that way uh, that we say and through my notes but not on here I said God's power through weakness I had weakness in quotes because God chose the weak to shame the strong he chose the foolish to shame the wise but he's not saying you're really foolish you're really weak not necessarily but he's saying that this is how he demonstrates himself to break down the systems that are trying to constantly assert themselves by worldly power or human power. Uh, that there is something very persuasive to say, oh, no, no, we actually want to uphold the weak because we have a hope. Mother Teresa is able to do something because she has hope rather than um, complete despair, even though she certainly had her doubts at times and for a long period of time. Um, the thing about weakness, uh, if I would take it up then, yeah. Um, and relating it to Martin Luther King, as I've been thinking about your last bit and remembering the, what little history I know about Martin, um, I think it bears reflection that since he was almost a Gandhian adherent, uh, adherent of nonviolence, yeah. though not a Gandhian in, in any other way, 
he used to teach nonviolent behavior in the midst of protest, such as it was, mm. um, very rigorously, and all of his people that were close to him did just that. So that was working, and I think it was beginning to work in the South. Um, but something happened, uh, I think, with Martin, and that is that though he adhered to his nonviolent teaching to the very end, um, in the last years of his life, it wasn't because he was insecure in his view that blacks and people, whites who were with blacks in the South and in other places wouldn't succeed. He began to, I think, uh, dialogues with uh, Malcolm and so forth, not lose faith in nonviolence, but he began to actually speak in the last years of his life to power. Uh, if those are people here don't know this, I'll just say it was happening, um, in ways which were really threatening. Mm -hmm. Okay? Now you can look this up if you want to study it, and I don't think, I'm not blaming Martin for that, because he held to the doctrine of nonviolence, which in, in his context I think was, was absolutely first class. Mm -hmm. But because he began to really get his back up, and speak directly through the media and sermons and speeches against the war in Vietnam um, and in other forms of the use of power that was happening in the U.S. As an evangelical conservative, this really disturbed a lot of people in government. Whereas before, it was not as if they weren't threatened. They were certainly far less threatened than when he began to turn into another zone. And um, so I would just say that it's too bad, in my view, that Martin didn't just stay with his original program and perhaps get more creativity and originality from the Holy Spirit as to how that nonviolence might be just pressed mm -hmm. in Christ without ever going further in his... Uh, speeches and so forth, to really take the U.S. government to task for its obvious stupidity in foreign policy, and to make references to the fact that a lot more blacks were being drafted than whites, and other things. This, I think, directly resulted in his assassination. I don't believe for a moment that he was assassinated because he was nonviolent. I believe he was assassinated because he changed his direction mm -hmm. slightly in his speech. So to me, his life was tragic mm -hmm. as well as salutary yeah. um, because he made a decision after discussing a lot of things with Malcolm, who was very persuasive, and came to believe that he needed to speak to the man directly and begin to criticize government mm -hmm. and their policy. Mm -hmm. So I thought I'd just add that. That's very helpful. That I, I, I really enjoyed your last bit on, on, on King, especially detail. I never read the I Have a Dream speech, mm -hmm. and so it was, it was, to me, very instructive to read those bits that you had. Yeah. No, thank you for adding that, uh, because I do think it's complex, and you know, even as I thought of examples that I might point to, mm -hmm. 
uh, you know, they're all kind of complicated. <laughs> they're, they're, they, um, I didn't mean to criticize your example. Oh, I didn't feel like I that it was it criticism. As, as a primo example. No, I didn't. I, I didn't add that as a caveat. Right, and I don't take it as a criticism. I'm, right. I'm jumping onto that caveat okay. and saying that I would need a caveat for a lot of examples that I had. I really liked how his I Have a Dream, particularly early on in his work, was really trying to, to make, make that change through nonviolence, but particularly through a biblical approach toward justice. Yeah. Uh, rather than saying, okay, how might we change and he was under lots of duress lots of strain uh there's other other qualities and other um other circumstances around his life that we might point at but but i don't want to and i'm not saying that you're doing this but i don't want to dismiss that someone who has a shining moment to say, okay, let's let's keep marching on that path because we have seen people make changes in that way. Mm-hmm. But you can see the temptation. I mean, this is where I think that this is, in <clears throat> fact, very difficult, uh, this talk, because we can all leave with our platitudes to say, okay, we're just going to be people of hope. Yeah. You know, oh, are you a part of the status quo and not wanting to challenge anything? Mm-hmm. But once you get mixed into wanting to, so no, we need to make some changes. Well, how are you going to make change? You know, uh, when the powers that be aren't listening. Or if you're being nonviolent, that's nice for you. Uh, and you see that with uh, Greta Thunberg with the whole, you know, she's wanting to kind of have this prophetic word. And, and then people are jumping on her on how she's handling it. And she's such a young, young woman, uh, young girl even, that uh, it becomes complicated. And so it is complicated to... How might we seek and desire political change that needs to happen so desperately when the powers that be so do not want it? It's so tempting uh, to want to buy into a strong man, uh, a strong man idea. And I think that that's a constant temptation. How, how do we navigate? So I've talked about left and the right, even though I think probably the real tension is um, how might we seek political change without compromise and and also to be um, humble without being passive mm-hmm. is it, that it's it's a real hard line mm-hmm. to know how to do that in each moment I do think that it has to happen small I'm a big advocate of making small change in order to make great change rather than just wanting to do the atomic bomb of justice you know, it's like, okay, if we get the right prime minister in, if we get the right president in, everything's going to be all right. And I don't think that that's how it works. I think, I think that that is a piece, but I don't think that that is the, um, uh, I think Americans, I grew up, I'm an American. We like big or go home. And, and I do think, and I love, Canadian politics does seem much more locally driven, it seems to me. Uh, and and I've been really helped by that. Um. And you have to focus. <clears throat> That's the only thing I'd comment too. I think you know, sort of what you're suggesting about King. It might make it just it, 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 too fragmented, make his his message and everything too broad. If he starts, you know, getting involved in some of the other things. I think you know he's better off, you know, just to focus. But also, it makes me think that you know, Christ in Roman occupied you know, Judea, you know, and, and thinking, you know, 
what's he do? You, you got, we got these Romans in here brutalizing us, and what are we supposed to do? Fight them out of our homes, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, you know, love your enemy. I mean, basically, but if you took that message into Holland in 1942, said the way you're going to defeat the Nazis is you're going to, you've got to love them, you've got to show them love, you've got to, you know, you've got to change their hearts, you know. It's not an easy message. No, there, there has to be, uh, there, there are times when there needs to be civil disobedience. Yeah, and then, as you know, to quote Tom Wright, he says, if you fight evil with evil, evil's bound to win. <laughs> That's right. Um, and and many of us come from privileged places, so uh, I mean everyone has their own hardships. But uh, but I wonder how this conversation would go in a different context. You know, I, I, I'm not unaware of that, but we but we can't neglect where we're at. This might be in the same. This is this is in the same vein of what we're talking about, but. I can see how our, like our collective and individual way of being in the world can be informed by Jesus' dialogue with Pilate. And I appreciated how you... I had never read that text in that way, specifically with how he, at rest he was in that conversation. But how might our way of being in the world also be informed by the temple incident? And... That that's quite large. I think also as a talking about the overturning of the tables. Yeah, yeah. I I've read it, and each time I read it, I think I am reading it differently, perhaps wrong. I think it's I, as some people can see it as quite political or quite religious or both or neither. But it's a behavior of Jesus uh, encountering people around him. So how can we use that as well to inform our way of being? Yeah, well, I would say that that is a mo moment of civil disobedience, perhaps, uh, I mean, uh, to apply it that way. Uh, I mean, just uh, Jesus, he would lose his temper when he saw the poor being marginalized. Uh, and um, he would be stern when a woman would be marginalized, but he got really, really angry when the poor were being oppressed, particularly when religious people were oppressing the poor. Uh, you know, shaming the name of the very thing that God was, you know, God's name was supposed to be meant for, to be known as the one who is for the down and the oppressed and the poor. Uh, and so when he's overturning <laughs> the tables, he's just like... Um, I'd like to speak to that briefly. Yeah, please, yeah. He, he came to his own. He was in the temple. Um, this was a... Re How can we apply or interpret this differently, perhaps? Christ was dealing with his own. He was in church doing this. So how does that work today? If you... As the people in Babylon were in captivity. Mm. Um... If we relate this simply, uh, in the case of Christ overturning the tables, he was doing that in church. Mm -hmm. Now, how would we do that in a church, mm -hmm. a Christian church? Yeah. That's dangerous, mm -hmm. and it also could be very unwise. But, as I see it, um, it, it begins with the people of God in their own milieu. 
they could be in Babylon, but they're in captivity because they didn't do what they were supposed to do. And people who were <coughs> ministering to the people in that community, like Daniel, were still in church in Babylon. And Christ was in church doing a thing. So, to me, the application can also be, if we're going to, to function in weakness or in a prophetic, under a prophetic uh, uh, standard, we do so in our own place first, um, whatever that means, not to criticize, I'm not saying that, it's just to function in our own place. I can't really apply this, if Christ is flipping a table, I don't see that as flip, flipping a table in the culture at all. I don't know if uh, other people do, but I don't, so I'm not so concerned with the culture myself as with the application of a biblical text starting with us and how we behave with each other, however disparate our Christian experience is. You go to your church, I go to my church, somebody goes to the United Church, somebody else goes to Seventh-day Adventist Church. These are all Christian churches, and how do we relate to one another inside our own fellowship, first and foremost, and then relating to other fellowships? So. Unfortunately, I'm rather parochial in my view of the interpretation of these texts. Babylon, to me, is simply captivity. It can happen in your brain. It can happen in your fellowship. But it certainly isn't going to happen in Ottawa. So I would just like to bring that as an alternative to, I think, a, a very rational view of dealing with the culture. I have no problems with that personally. But the strict interpretation, as I see it, of a captivity going into Babylon is simply a church going into a zone. Could be a headspace. <coughs> Probably is. Or they go into a piece of geography in Christianity in which they haven't got a clue what's going on. So, unfortunately, I have a simplistic view of the interpretation that goes from the Old Testament to the New. I don't... I, the culture for me, in, in terms of apologetics and so forth, is extremely important to witness to. However, before I would ever think of getting together with Elizabeth May or something and saying, good for you for being a collaborator in Parliament and being a complete, um, she's completely unusual. She's the only person that thinks the party system is absolute nonsense. Nobody else has a clue where she's at. I would not go to her first. I would make sure that I was an effective member of my fellowship. And then that might resonate to the culture, and then maybe after that I'd go and see Elizabeth May. But I would start locally with my application of Daniel and see how it would reflect inside a situation where I was in captivity personally or my church had gone into a zone where it was completely deceived. And I thought I'd offer that up. I yeah, don't know if it no. makes any sense. I, I'd like somebody mm -hmm. to respond to that because it seems like a rather radical notion, perhaps. I think it's helpful. It, I'm considering how uh, my generation of millennials might receive that, especially when so many of us, myself not included, but many of my peers don't even see church as a valid notion within Christendom anymore. And so I think they would have a difficult time receiving that word. 
because they might not see themselves as being a part of any space like you're referring to, even though, you know, theologically, it's incredibly central. Well, are these millennials that don't attend a fellowship? Forget the word church. Or are you talking about millennials who you know who are not Christians? What Specifically, like, um, <coughs> professing Christians who have chosen not to attend church because it's not within their belief system. or they've Do they fellowship, though? Do they get together and and interact? Well, I think as human beings, we all do. And so they would. I can just see how they would skirt around that conversation by saying, like, well, I don't go to church, so... So I'll go to Parliament. Oh, I see. So they would come off church as a reaction. Like they would negate the responsibility. Go to to Ottawa. Yeah. I see. So Hmm, I just think it's an important conversation to have. I think that's significant. Especially in like, how how can I navigate the responsibility of functioning well within my own space first? I think that's... Your personal space, just you. And then then within the fellowship of people around me. Right. Christians. Yeah. That's a good word. I mean, I'm not saying there are no unbelievers here tonight, but... I, I just would would say that that's my view of Babylon is it's a state of mind if you translate it out of the Old Testament in a community and it's a place of punishment which you can see clearly in Revelation if you look deeply even though people have eschatologized this thing out of the community when clearly the frightening thing is it's a space and a zone that we can all get into of complete confusion and disorientation and delusion. So that's what I'd like to bring to the discussion from that point of view. Yeah, I do think that there is biblical support. I mean, as I mentioned earlier, that Jesus was most upset because of how they were representing God's name. And throughout Paul, you know, uh, he says, you know, first love your brothers and sisters mm-hmm. before you, you go out into the public world and think about that. And, and mm-hmm. there's almost a different process in which to how to think about just unjust food to the idols, mm-hmm. all this kind of stuff. There was always different code of ethics within and actually more stringent than they were outside. Because this is, this is how we are to be a body of Christ. On the outside, don't expect them to be the body of Christ because mm-hmm. they aren't the body of Christ. No. And so if you can't love your brother, and, and, and so he would always focus on loving your brother and sister, and I thought, well, that's quite insular. But I've come to understand, much, what, much in the same way that you were expressing, that the first stance needs to be toward the ones in which we have fellowship, the ones that we have solidarity with, the ones mm-hmm. that we share an identity with. That's the lab. That's the lab. And yeah. if it doesn't work in the lab, you it's not going to work out. You That's stay it. in the lab until the thing works. <laughs> in other words, you get stuck in, as in rugby, hmm. without regard to your physical um, well-being. well-being at all. Hmm. And there are folks that don't get stuck in. Mm-hmm. And to be in Christ then would be to stay put until whatever might make you wander or get upset, you have to just say, well, that's not an, that's not an option. There's something wrong with me. It's not something wrong with my brother, first of all. And, and so I should stay put until I sort this out, and then I might learn how to love somebody who's unlovable, in my view. Yeah, I, kind of I think yes and no. I mean, I would say that we can't get stuck within the community without also venturing out. Mm-hmm. 
I understand that. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you agree that with that? Oh, I do. But the thing is, is that I think there's less of an emphasis on the working out of relationships um, in a strictly New Testament sense of um, take, uh, dealing with an offense, mm -hmm. dealing with a misunderstanding between different people in a Christian fellowship, having trouble with a brother or sister, or them having trouble with you. It, that's exactly what you're saying, of developing the love relationship. To me, that resonates if it's successful mm -hmm. to the point where it throbs out into the community in a way which can't be measured. Mm -hmm. And then when one goes out, the community is, is automatically changed by the fact that the life from that resolution of relationship problems, which are natural, goes out into the community and then prepares the people that you're talking to or even being with. To receive the gospel. Yeah, and that's where I think a healthy church or a healthy fellowship actually transforms the society around exactly. them yeah. by being healthy, a healthy organism, yeah. rather than being a weak or depraved organism that ends up creating a virus in right. the society. Yeah, and I would say finally, the weakness thing to me is really serious. Like, yes, you can put quotes around it because it doesn't mean that you're a weakling or whatever, mm -hmm. but Paul was seriously disabled. Mm -hmm in my view, at the end of his apostleship. And he got more and more disabled in, in ordinary ways. He used to talk about it in Corinthians. How people, well, you, you know the scriptures that he would say, before you, I'm an idiot. Um, my presence is virtually a joke. And that's because God had weakened him to the extent that only the Holy Spirit could come out at that point. And that's a serious issue um, that, to me, puts uh, the truth in your statement about the importance of weakness. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a serious debilitation that takes a whole life mm -hmm. of being weakened to the point where your natural talents just don't shine anymore mm -hmm. in that sense. Yeah. So I would totally agree with you, but I just wanted to sort of augment it in a couple of places. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't, I, yeah, and I want to pick that up if we can more in a second, but I want to follow, continue on the, 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 the line of thought talking about the insular. Sure. Because, you know, when, when Israel, when God's people were called out of Egypt, out of bondage, they were constituted as a people by the law of Moses. And this law, um, a lot of people think it's very much like a, a kingly treaty, that this is your new constitution. This is how you are to be constituted as a people. And so all these laws were to tell them this is how they are to farm. This is how they are to treat the foreigner. This is how they are to treat one another. This is how they are to create aberrations, court cases. And so there was a whole justice system internal to God's people but the reason that they were constituted as a people without land, without a nation, uh, but they were constituted by God, by their law, by their word, is that um, they were supposed to know how to function justly in order that they might be a light to the nations. And so if we learn how to function justly within one another, I think that that's actually how we do bring about change. Um, I've been talking about how 
as a Christian, we might stand in a public witness or in an even small way, small communities, how we might present um, renewed ways or just ways or godly or loving ways that we can act in small, that, that might permeate communities. But, uh, um, but it's that law that, that it's once we are just within ourselves, then it will actually start filtering out into the nation. Uh, and I've seen that with the care for the poor, you know. Uh, and this is where I think that it can be too insular because I think, yeah, you should have Christian fellowship, but maybe your fellowship should be around helping the poor um, or your fellowship be around a certain mission mm -hmm. rather than just mm -hmm. geography, perhaps. It can be any reasons why you might have fellowship, but then you seek justice within those relationships where you are at, and then it flows out. Um, so that's just, I wanted to, to say that. Um, we can pick up the weakness piece, but is there anything else that you want to say? I just want to say that you, with all that, you don't want to negate individual responsibility. Absolutely. No, but we have an individual responsibility in light of community, in light of fellowship. Mm -hmm. So I'm never my own individual action too. there's an individual responsibility but i have an individual responsibility to the community and mm. to god to the world yeah. um and so i i do act on my own and i'm not just looking for someone else to act for me but as i act i need to recognize that i act as a function of the church as a function of my community a function of christ a function of well the body of christ is ultimately what the church is right Yeah, um, anything else? Yeah, just the last thing and then we can uh, dismiss. But uh, yeah, this weakness part, it's, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, sometimes people come here into Labrie and they think that they need to be strong, they need to be intelligent, they need to have it all together, they need to have their home, they need to have before something that that's God cannot work through them until they have everything going well. But I have to tell you that life almost never goes well. <laughs> you just got to start where you're at. And, uh, and we can praise God for those moments when it is going well, but... But God can work through the very weaknesses that I have, and, and I'm sure that in talking to each of you that, that God can and has presented his power through, through our weakness and, and being weakened, that we might not rest on our own wiles or our own powers, but on God. And I think that Paul fundamentally understood that at a metaphysical level, um, at a very spiritual level, um, that that he was really functioning not in his own power to such an extent that I cannot relate. I think Paul has gone way beyond that, I can imagine. Any last thoughts? Thanks be to God. Me, <laughs> it just makes me think of the idea of, like we talk about the idea of active passivity, um, which you could probably explain better, but um, yeah, just the tension of we, we need to be passive or listening or um, prayerful and yet also active. There's that, there's always that tension of uh, how much, when to be active, how much to be active. And 
Yeah, I mean, just because you brought it up, just um, Francis and Edith Schaefer started Labrie, and they started in Switzerland, and he had a term called active passivity that he talks about in his book, True Spirituality. Basically, it's just talking about how we might look, how do we produce the fruit of God through us in such a way? And he says, well, you can't do it by just saying, okay, God, do your magic, mm -hmm. which is what I grew up with. I can't be good unless God makes me good. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and then other people trying to be good in their own power mm -hmm. uh, or trying to do God's work. And so he says, well, it can't be either way where we're just passive sitting back and saying, okay, God, you do your stuff. Mm -hmm. Or we're going to act on God's name and God, I hope you catch up. But rather this act of passivity is of being like Mary saying, mm -hmm. let it be according to thy promises. And so she could not produce Christ in herself, but God had to produce it in her as she participated in what God was giving her. And so that's is what active passivity, um, or the concept of active passivity from the papers. <coughs> well, okay. Well, thanks, and uh, Thank you. have a good night. There's probably more dessert. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Yeah.